to be reminded of what, what it is we're all about as, as a church. Well, um, you know, we have one week before this new series kicks off, and I thought, Lord, what should I preach this week? <laughs> and I think he really laid something on my heart that, you know, we have a mission, we have a vision, um, but there is, we have an enemy, and I think it would be wise for us to acknowledge that and to reflect uh, and meditate on the fact that, that there is such a thing as Satan and demons. And so um, it's probably a topic that you probably haven't heard much about. I don't know the last time you heard a, a sermon on, on demons. Um, and it's a topic not very often addressed here in the West. However, it's very much a live topic today. And so I want to speak to you this morning about the reality of the demonic realm and the spiritual battle that is waging around us at the moment. So in order to do that, I think it's good that we prepare our hearts to receive God's word um, in song. And we're going to stand together and sing a good old hymn by Martin Luther, who knew a few things about spiritual warfare. And so we're going to stand together and sing, A Mighty God is Our Fortress. Fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Jesus. 
Remain standing as I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit fall on this place in the exposition of your word this morning. Lord, may you be glorified in our hearts and in this church forever. And Lord, we confess because of Jesus Christ, you have conquered Satan. You have conquered the dominion of darkness. You have rescued us out of the domain of darkness and you have set us in the kingdom of your son. And for that, we give you thanks. And so, Lord, do your will and your work through the preaching of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at um, mainly 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 22 this morning. But uh, as a kind of, a, to give it a broader context, I also want to read Deuteronomy 32, 15 to 20. And in here, you'll see both Moses and Paul are making the same spiritual principle about the reality of false worship and what lies behind false worship. And so uh, as we read these passages, look for the connections. So I'll begin with Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 to 20. Then he, which he's talking about Israel, forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to to new gods that they had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocations of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness, and they have made me jealous with what is no God, and they have provoked me to anger with their idols. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul draws on Deuteronomy 32 to Wake up a complacent and slumbering congregation in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation or communion or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation, communion, fellowship in the, in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So what do I imply here? What am I saying, guys? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. So I do not want you to be participants or in fellowship or in communion with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The word of the Lord. I was quite disturbed this week, and this is kind of why we're talking about this, or at least the Lord laid it on my heart, um, to read about a new monument that's been temporarily placed on top of New York City's courthouse. It's supposedly a monument to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? The U.S. Supreme Court, who kind of was the architect of drafting laws that made abortion a, a normal part of our culture. And in the New York Times article here that you see a clipping of, the artist was quoted as saying, the sculpture was part of an urgent and necessary cultural reckoning underway as New York, along with cities across the world, reconsiders traditional representations of power in public spaces and recasts civic structures to better reflect 21st century norms. And she goes on to say, that the work was called now because it was needed now, at a time when women's reproductive rights were under siege after the U.S. Supreme Court in June overthrew the constitutional right to abortion. Now, the, the reason this monument got my attention is not so much for what it stands for, which is bad enough on its own, but the statue itself is not depicting Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There's nothing in there that looks like her except for the white flock, uh, lace flock that she wore, whatever you call it. Um, the reality is, the figure is most likely based on the mythological figure out of rabbinic Judaism, which is known as the demon Lilith. She's often portrayed with uh, serpent-like appendages and horns. Lilith is first mentioned in ancient Babylon texts as a winged female demon who attacks pregnant women and infants and plagues young men. She also appears in Isaiah 34:14 among a list of wild animals who haunt and destroy the kingdom of Edom. Biblical scholar Jane, Janet Howard Gaines writes this, today the tradition of Lilith has enjoyed a resurgence due mainly to the feminist movement of the late 20th century. Renewed interest in Lilith has led to modern writers to invent ever more stories about her, ignoring or explaining away Lilith's unsavory traits. Feminists have focused instead upon Lilith's independence and desire for autonomy. James Joyce, the, the Irish uh, author, um, labeled Lilith the patron demon behind uh, abortions. 
C.S. Lewis in The Tales of Narnia modeled the white witch after Lilith, who was determined to kill the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. So obviously, as a Christian, we should take great offense when the demonic is celebrated, exalted, and even lifted up by a government institution as powerful as the U.S. But this contemporary incident, really, it didn't make me angry. It made me sad and actually a bit fearful for what is to come. We have become so secular and pagan in our thinking that there is kind of a naive and ignorant bent toward not just doing evil, but celebrating it. And as I'm reflected this week in my devotional life, in my quiet times, I read Psalm 2, 1 to 3. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. The fact that this type of monument is being set up gives us a snapshot of the spiritual state of things in our society at the moment. And and we'd be naive to think that this will not have implications for Christians and for the church. This is just a public manifestation of very real evil forces that are working behind the scenes in society, in world events that are unfolding right now. And if you think this is just those crazy Americans, it's just as prevalent here in Germany. If you remember just this last November at the G7 Gipfel, the G7 summit uh, in Munster, the German foreign office removed a cross from the room that had been there for 430 years so as not to offend. As Christians, we need to be wise to what's happening in the world around us. And we must not be foolish and naive about the very real and very strong spiritual forces at work in this world. They hate Jesus. They hate the cross. And they'll do anything to tear it down. We're not living in a neutral setting where all ideas are given equal worth and value. We live in an age that is under demonic sway and there are real evil forces at work in the world. Several times in the New Testament, as we Christians are warned that we are to live at war against these spiritual powers and dominions and forces that wage war against Christ and the church. Not flesh and blood, not people, but Satan and his demons. And so it's good for us to take time together to reflect a bit on these spiritual forces that are actively working against the church. And the Corinthian church is a great example for us because what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10 is to warn them to wake up, to wake up to the spiritual reality that is around them. And many of the Corinthian Christians were complacent. They were wealthy. They were comfortable. And they had a false assurance that everything between them and God was okay. They misunderstood God's grace as freedom to sin licensed to do all kinds of evil and sinful things. And they put their confidence in the fact that they were baptized a long time ago and that they regularly took communion. And if they did these activities, it would just make up for their sinful living. So they would party at a pagan temple on Saturday and then come and have communion on Sunday. And they thought that this activity would kind of negate the bad behavior committed the night before. And Paul is trying to shake off 
this false assurance. He knew that there was a real risk that these activities would draw them away from Christ and, and back into idolatry out of which they came. Their activities in the pagan temples were not neutral activities, but had real spiritual meaning. And there was real demonic forces lying behind their sinful behavior. And so the Corinthian Christians are very much like many Christians living in the Western world today. They were materialistic, immoral, very much lazy fare about our sins, right? Everybody sins. And so Paul says, no, that's, that's not how it works. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We have, is the slides up? Is it not working? Oh, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> we can't have our cake and eat it too. Our activities in private and out in the world, they're not insignificant. They have meaning and they tell us who we are truly worshiping. We are either living in loyal allegiance to Christ or worshiping and serving and gratifying the desires of our flesh. There is light and darkness. There is good and evil. There is right and wrong. And so before we get into Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's probably good that I say a few words by way of introduction to the whole biblical concept of demons. Uh, since when I say Satan and demons, they're probably not things you've thought about or perhaps thought about biblically. They're more influenced by Hollywood or movies or novels than the Bible. So let me just go through a brief overview uh, to give us a framework and a, a boundaries on how to think about the demonic uh, realm. So I said eight things, eight things that you should know about Satan and demons. And I've taken this from an article by systematic theologian Graham Cole, um, and you can look them up later. So first of all, demons are fallen angels. We don't know too much about the origin of demons, but we do know that there's a rebellion in heaven, and Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. Uh, Revelation 12, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there's no longer any place for them in heaven. So demons are fallen angels. Satan is their leader. He goes by several names in the Bible, tempter, Belizebub, I can't say it, enemy, evil one, Bilal, adverse, adversary, deceiver, great dragon, father of lies, murderer, and the original sinner. Three, Satan and his demonic entourage have limitations. This is important. It's important to remember that they are creatures. So they are not divine. They are spirit but not have powers that anywhere near the power of God. We don't believe in a yin-yang type of universe where good and evil are equal forces. So we have to remember that evil is subservient to God's power. And we learn a lot in the book of Job that Satan can't do anything, anything without God allowing him to do it. So we also know from other parts of scripture that Satan and demons are limited in power, in scope, knowledge, and influence. Jesus has more authority over demons. They're creatures, and they're not on the same level as the creator. Fourth, 
Satan's aim is to get you to worship him. When Satan was tempting Jesus in the desert, his aim was to get Jesus to bow down and worship him. And so Satan and his demons aim that we worship anything besides God alone. And that's why idolatry and false religion in scripture is the great temptation always laying before God's people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So I don't want you to be participants with demons. The ultimate goal of Satan is false worship. Five, Christ is victor over Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And when he says make practice, that means a habit, right? So this is unrepentant sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has triumphed over Satan on the cross, which means that Satan's destiny is one of destruction. He has no eternal future in heaven, and his reign is limited in time and scope. The war is lost, and the cleanup battles are still being waged. Okay, six, the two main forms of demonic manifestation. The only power he has is to deceive you. The devil comes as an angel of light. He deceives and blinds through tempting our fallen fleshly nature. So deception through temptation. And the other manifestation, the other way we see demonic activity manifested is through persecution. Satan aims to torment and oppress the church through all forms of persecution. Seven, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Demons cannot enter into a Christian who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, which means a demon cannot enter into a Christian. We can be troubled by demons. We can be harassed, oppressed, but not possessed. Eight, Christians can resist. And because of Jesus Christ, we have authority over demons. So we can fight uh, demons because of the power of God and the gospel message. In Luke 10, 17, we read the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we can never say, oh, the devil made me do it, yeah? Or the temptation was too strong or anything that removes our own personal responsibility for sin. All right, so these are just a few facts, biblical facts about demons and Satan that should give us a healthy framework when we begin thinking about the reality of the demonic. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his introduction to the screw tape letters, which some of you may know, he, he says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. And others to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They say they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So in light of these truths, let, let's go to Paul's main argument in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and see how Paul instructs the Corinthians to resist demonic influence in our own lives. And Paul uses the Israelites who, who God rescued out of Egypt as an example for these lukewarm Christians in Corinth that were casually living in sin. And he wanted to shake them up. 
And he wanted to get them out of their false assurance. And so I pray that will do the same for you as well. So first six verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that's also for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So here Paul draws a clear parallel between the Corinthian complacent Christians and the Israelites Moses led out of Egypt. They'd been baptized, they ate the bread from heaven, the manna, right? They were baptized through the Red Sea. They drank from the rock that was Christ. And so just like the Corinthians who were baptized and had regular communion, the spiritual food, yet despite this, God was angry with that generation and judged them for their disobedience and they could not enter the promised land. And so Paul is concerned for them. He's concerned for us that we should not miss the lessons of history. In verse 6, he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so we should take heed that just going through the religious motions of Sunday morning, but living the rest of the week uh, like the, the world, this will disqualify us from entering the kingdom of heaven. This type of behavior just reveals that we have not truly been converted, that the Holy Spirit has not changed our lives, that uh, we have not, we are only giving lip service, but not lordship over our hearts. And Paul continues in, in the parallels in the following verses as he lists the sins the Corinthians are engaged in. Look at verses 7 to 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These are all things the Israelites did in the wilderness, but it's the same thing the Corinthians are doing in their pagan festivities. The Corinthians would have been reading this and starting to wiggle uh, and shift uncomfortably in their seats. But we ought to have the same discomfort. The term idolatry seems foreign to us living in the 21st century Germany, but trust me, the concept is very much alive today. We might not go to a temple and bow down to a statue, but we all very much have a host of idols that we worship and serve in our hearts. One definition of an idol is defined this way. Anything we serve, love, desire, fear, and worship, apart from God, to give us love, joy, peace, freedom, status, identity, control, happiness, security, fulfillment, health, pleasure, significance, acceptance, and respect. So any number of things can become an idol for us. The problem is when we make them ultimate things. Just consider to what you turn when you are stressed out or angry or worn out and exhausted or sad. What do you do? Where do you go to receive joy, peace, security, happiness? 
Is it God and basking in the beauty of his presence that we have through Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? We may not be tempted to to bow down to a metal statue, but we will be tempted to worship the idols that our society so highly values, the gods of materialism, money, possession, entertainment, careerism, where you sacrifice everything on the altar to get ahead, narcissism, health, fitness, beauty, eroticism, sex, and relationships. We can't lie and cheat and steal in order to make money and think this is compatible with the Christian faith. We can't indulge in pornography or abuse alcohol or waste our days on video games or excessive partying or mindless self-entertainment and then casually behave as if it's a normal part of the Christian life. We can't busy ourselves anxiously living in fear, endlessly gossiping about others, holding others in resentment and bitterness and ignore our sins and think that we're okay with the Lord. Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians to wake up from their slumber and to repent. He goes on in verses 11 to 14. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We're living now in the last days, right? The end of the ages. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed unless he falls. We need this warning. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul is raising the red flag and the warning, the Corinthians, that they are going to run aground that they're in a truck without brakes, that they must turn back to Christ and repent. Turn back to Christ and repent. And some of you need to hear that message this morning too. And therefore he says, flee, run from idolatry. We are never without an opportunity to flee, to run from temptation and run to Christ. That's the grace that he offers us in Jesus. And Paul is raising the stakes for these Corinthian Christians who are putting hope in religious rituals uh, instead of heartfelt trust and earnest desire to seek the Lord. Paul is speaking to someone who perhaps made a decision for Christ 10 years ago, but still is an infant in the faith. J.I. Packer famously quipped, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. So Paul says, we have these things written down as an example, as an instruction, so that we might not desire evil things like they did. So take heed of those Israelites who didn't make it into the promised land. Verses 15 to 22, Paul comes to the crux, the real crux of his argument. And I myself felt convicted under the weight of this argument. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is that not participation? And the word, as you gathered when I read it, is the same as communion, fellowship. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Well, consider the people of Israel. Are they not who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? They get the benefits of the altar. What, do, what is he implying? What does he mean by all that? The food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, these false gods don't exist. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they are offering to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What Paul is saying is important for us today, for all of us. He makes the same connection that Moses did way back in Deuteronomy 32. Standing behind our temptations, standing behind our idolatry, are real demonic forces. In the ancient world, the, the gods behind the pagan idols were always attached to something physical, something God intended to be a good thing, but the pagan world made them ultimate things. So yeah, there was always a, a pagan god standing behind a physical object. And, and Paul's saying, they're not gods, they're demons. So behind the god of wine was Dionysus, right? Behind the god of sex and beauty was Eros and Aphrodite. Behind the god of fertility was Baal. We could go on. And, and so what Paul is saying, that's, that's the problem with this, these plethora of gods. They, we have a plethora of gods in our own world today. And Paul and Moses are saying, behind these false gods, behind these idols are demons. And our sinful behavior, our sinful routines are sort of demonic liturgy where we pay them tribute and we fellowship with them and we commune with them when we engage in these activities. It's participation or fellowship or communion with demons. And, and to illustrate this principle, Paul draws on the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, which we do, we'll do in a moment, we're not just recalling Christ's death and his atoning sacrifice, but we are participating in his body and blood. The word participating is fellowship, communion. And this is why communion is only for those who have experienced this full surrender to the Lord, who have had their heart renewed by the filling of the Holy Spirit, because we are in fellowship, participation with Jesus. We get the benefits of his broken body and his blood that was shed. And so what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is that when they participate in the pagan meals, the pagan festivities, they are participating and fellowshipping and communing with demons. And that ought to horrify you. So how do we apply the gospel to this teaching? Well, you know, thanks be to God, this actually gets to the very heart, the very heart of the gospel. In Colossians 1, we read that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 gets to the heart of the gospel and how that relates to, to Satan and the domain of darkness. God made us alive with him 
having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. That's the gospel. We are freed from the domain of darkness and Satan and his demons no longer have power over our behavior. When we receive the gospel message into our hearts and believe it and surrender our life to him, he floods our hearts with his Holy Spirit and says, you are mine. You are mine. From the moment we receive the gospel, he breaks the demonic power of sin in our life. And so when we do sin, we fall back and we will fall back in our sinful behavior. We have an advocate in Jesus who says his debt is paid. Her debt is paid. I have freed him. She is mine. When we soak into this truth, when we really savor it and, and take it into our soul, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. John MacArthur, I think, has the best explanation of this verse. He says, consider this truth. Although Jesus was blameless and spotless, without even a hint of sin, God treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed in the entire world, even though he was innocent. And on the cross, God treated Jesus like I deserve to be treated, like you deserve to be treated. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, God the Father turns and looks at us like he would look at Jesus. And he looks at Jesus like we deserve to be looked at. And he treats us as if we lived the life that Jesus lived. And he treats Jesus as he lived our life. When God looks at the cross, he sees you. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And as a result of this gospel message, this good news, the power of sin is broken in your life. And we can approach the God of grace without hindrance, without barrier. And as the spirit ministers this gospel into our hearts, then we begin to hate the sin in our life more and more. And we will move farther and farther away from the domain of darkness where we once lived. What a wonderful truth this is. We've been freed from the dominion of darkness. And the forces that are evil at work in this world no longer have power over us. Jesus breaks the power of sin and evil. So we close this time together. We need to begin to prepare our hearts for communion. That blessed fellowship, participation, um, communion with Christ and with one another. So let us consider the sin in our life, the idols in our hearts, and how Jesus had freed us from these false gods and demonic forces. And let's repent and turn to him afresh. If you don't know Jesus and you've never known this beautiful truth that in your heart, then I invite you to use this time to turn to the Lord, to receive the gift of salvation into your heart. Don't take the cup, don't take the bread, but receive Christ instead. 
confess your sin and receive this wonderful offer of the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ. Surrender and you too can be freed from the dominion of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of the Son. Let's pray.